Very good. Revelation chapter 3 tonight. We're going to talk about a new church, and honestly, um, we're only going to spend one week on this church. This is the church at Philadelphia, uh, and then we have one church that we're going to look at next week and the week after. That'll be the church at Laodicea, and then we're going to get into a new series. Haven't 100% decided on, which, on what we're going to do after we get finished with all this. I have two ideas um, of what I'd like to do, so we'll see where we go with that, but really three ideas, but uh, we'll, we'll have something figured out within the next couple weeks. But the message to the church at Philadelphia tonight. Now, uh, Philadelphia was a church that was not too far from Sardis. Honestly, it was, it was founded by Attilus uh, Philadelphus. That's where it got its name from. He was the king of Pergamos, and that was a few centuries actually before the Christian era, uh, before Christ came and all of that and, and the apostles and everything else, but only a few centuries. Some of these were eight, nine, ten centuries before that, you know. Uh, this, this was only a couple, but uh, it was situated on the side of a mountain. It had a, a, uh, just a tremendous view of a fertile, extensive country. In fact, there were was, there was some uh, commentators that actually mentioned that it was really known for its wine because of how fertile the, gr the ground was for growing grapes and all of that kind of stuff. I don't know much about that, but like Sardis, it actually suffered quite heavily um, from the uh, earthquakes during the reign of Tiberius, and, and apparently there were some serious earthquakes that did a lot of damage, and, and you know, um, when everything is rocks stacked on top of each other, that, that causes some tremendous damage, which we still have that, but, you know, uh, we're, we're more uh, able to handle some of those kind of things, but of, of, of all the seven churches, um, this one had the longest uh, duration of um, Christianity in its city. Uh, there's a, there was, uh, it's, it's still a very spread out town. It's, it's still actually in existence today, but there are 24 remains of ancient church buildings there in Philadelphia, 24, um, which means, I mean, the fact that, that all these years later, they're still there means they were there for quite some time. And, and, um, it was, it was a pretty important place during the time of the apostles, not so much today, but. The church at Philadelphia really had no weaknesses to speak of, and that's why we're only going to spend one week on it. Um, some of the other churches, you know, God kind of gave them mild rebukes and things like that, and so we kind of combine that into one. But this one, really, there's nothing against this church. Uh, obviously, they were made up of humans, so they probably had some flaws. But as a church, or as a church as a whole, they didn't have any problems that God felt was just, you know, pressing issues like some of these other churches that we've talked about. So. Um, none of these things that they dealt with warranted a rebuke from the Lord, which is a tremendous uh, testimony to what, what the church at Philadelphia was going through. One commentator said it this way, no church receives richer praise than Philadelphia. It seems as, she, as if she had been but one step to make in advance to obtain her admittance into the church triumphant. The church at Philadelphia was a wonderful church. In fact, let's read what the Bible says about it. Verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now, does, do any of you have, um, and, and all, you might not, but does your Bible have that phrase, he that hath the key of David and so on, in small capital letters? Does, does anybody's Bible have that? Okay, some of you. Uh, a lot, some of your study Bibles might have it. 
Um, mine has that, um, and, and the reason, and the only reason I was going to point it out is because whenever you see those small capitals like that, it's usually because it is quoting something from the Old Testament. This is actually a quote from the book of Isaiah. And we'll talk about that in a second. But he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth, I know thy works. By the way, I think it's interesting that God says, I know thy works. He doesn't say, I know your thoughts, I know your intentions. He judges us based on what we do. And obviously, he knows our thoughts and everything else, and, and he, can, you know, he can judge us based on those things. But with every one of these churches, he said, I know your works. I know what you've done. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and thou hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept... The word of my patience, I will keep. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Boy, there's a lot in there. And um, I, you know, almost, almost could probably take two weeks to go through it if I had expanded some of these things. We're not going to be terribly, terribly long tonight. Uh, but there's a lot here. There's only the slightest possible hint of rebuke. We'll look at that shortly. Um, but nothing but praise is given to this church. It was a revival church. Um, and by that, I mean this. It experienced revival in its world vision. Um, it had experienced revival in the way that it had overcome the legalism of the Judaizers. We see that in verse 8 about the, the first point, about the, the revival in world vision, the, the way that it had overcome the legalism in verse number 9. It experienced revival in the way that it was looking for the Lord's return. I mean, those are all things that are commanded to the church to do, and they're doing it. Um, so the Lord stands before this church not to offer blame, but to offer blessing. I mean, he tells them, what you're doing, keep doing it. Boy, that, what, what a better thing. What, what better thing could you say about a church than for God to say, the things that you're doing right now, keep doing it. You are doing exactly what I want you to do. Uh, so before we get to talking about this church in particular, I want to point out that these, uh, that these saints at Philadelphia are given a fresh vision of the Lord. We see that in verse number 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now they see the king in his beauty. They're given a vision of the righteousness of the king. And that's why I say we could, we could take a lot of time to kind of unpack all of these verses. There's a lot in them. But it says, he is holy and true. So they're given a vision of the righteousness of God. They're given a vision of the resources of the king. Look what it says there in, in the next verse, or in that, later on in that verse, he that hath the key of David. Now, this expression is actually taken from Isaiah 22, 22. We don't have to go over there and look at it. Uh, you can if you want to, but you can take my word for it. This is where it comes from. And we're told that Eliakim, who is the son of Hilkiah, had the key of the house of David, which really gave him access to all of the treasures of David. Now, he was in that line, so, so technically everything that's passed from one king goes to the next one, and all of his riches are passed on to the next king and so on, and usually the next king is his own son, and so he's just passing it on to his son, and as they accumulate riches, 
Those things just get passed down from one generation to the next, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the treasures of the king. And so by saying that the one that controls the key to the palace has authority of controls, he has unlimited access to the house. He has unlimited access to everything at his disposal. And I think that's what this is talking about here. Um, and, and, and kind of then right along with that, so they were given a vision of the righteousness of the king, they were given a vision of the resources of the king, and then they were also given a vision of the regality of the king. In other words, his regal, just the way that he had absolute control. It says, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. In other words, he is sovereign in all of his ways. He has absolute control over everything that happens. And, I, and, and this church was given that opportunity to see the Lord in that way. So let's talk about the strengths of the church at Philadelphia tonight. We don't have any weaknesses to talk about, uh, which, I mean, again, what, what better thing can you say about a church that there are no weaknesses as a church? Uh, but the first thing that we see is this. They were a church with an opportunity. He says this in verse number eight. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. That, to me, uh, just distinctly indicated special opportunities in engaging with uh, missionary work of the church. The Lord saw their willingness. Because of that, he was giving them an open door of opportunity that, that what he says there very specifically, no power on earth could shut. Uh, look, the devil opposes everything that we do, especially when, when you have a church that is bringing glory to God. And you, and you think about Job. I mean, Job, for all practical purposes, had done nothing wrong, but, but Satan comes to God and he says, let me add him. And God says, all right, he's yours, just don't take his life. And, he, and Satan just comes at him with everything that he's got. Why? Because Job was serving the Lord, and he's going to try to do everything that he can to keep us from serving God. But this says, God opens doors of opportunities that no man can shut. And obviously, anything that Satan does in this world, he can't just go do it. He has to ask permission from God. God allows those things to happen. But we, we often want to have the doors open first. But he says, no, you, you be faithful. You take that first step, and then I'll open the doors at the right time for you. Um, I believe that's why some churches are so limited in their growth. They want all the doors to be open. They want everything to be like, a, you know, just a golden pathway. And okay, now we'll go do this, you know. What God expects us to do, I believe, is that he just wants us to step out in faith. And once we take that first step, then he opens those doors. I mean, we've, we've had a lot of things that have been like that since we've started, you know. I mean, coming into this building is a big step. It's, it's a big responsibility. There's a lot to do with it. But if you never take that step, we'd still be in a hotel right now. And I'm not saying that it, it takes great faith or anything like that. But God expects us to take that first step. Same thing with starting any of the ministries that we are starting or would you know, need to start. We can talk about it all day long. Just talking about it is not going to mean, it doesn't mean that God's going to open up those doors of opportunity. We've got to take that step. And once we take that step, then God opens up those doors. And I'm, I'm afraid, sadly, that many churches never grow, never get out of really their infancy because they're afraid to take that step. And if you never take that step, you're basically proving that you don't trust God enough to take care of you. Look, if it's right and God's leading us in that direction, go forward. God's not going to let us fall on our face, right? If it's something that he's in, if it's something that he's behind, look, these ministries and things that we, that we are starting and that we need to start, 
these, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of things that I'd love to do and, and that we're going to do. And it takes money and it takes, it takes people. But the thing is, if we never step out because, well, what are we going to do if the money doesn't show up? We just expect that it's going to because God is in it and God's going to take care of his church. And that's, that's what happened with this church. He's, he's opening these doors of opportunity. We have to move in faith before God begins to open those doors many times. And then we'll be surprised at how many doors God does open when we step out. But it's a special honor for a church to have the opportunities that God gave to the church at Philadelphia. But it's also true that when a church is involved in missionary activity, and I don't necessarily mean just you know, foreign missions, a church is supposed to be involved in getting the message of the gospel outside the walls of this church, and that is missionary activity. We are missionaries. Now, just because we're not going overseas, just because we're not going to the other side of the world does not mean that we're not a missionary. A missionary is someone who carries the message of the good news of the gospel, and that's what we are supposed to be. You're supposed to be a missionary in your neighborhood. You're supposed to be a missionary at your job. You're supposed to be a missionary to your family. We're, we're supposed to be missionaries. And so a church that is involved in missionary activities, that's the best security for a church staying alive and staying active. Look, if you've got people who are spreading the message of the gospel, uh, a, a church that's alive enough to, to be earnest about doing Christian work is a church that is alive enough to resist the influence of evil. If you are, are so dead that you cannot go out and be a missionary as a church or as an individual, then you're dead enough that you're not going to be able to fight the advances of Satan. And he's, he's just going to walk all over you. He's going to destroy you. He's going to chew you up and spit you out because that's what he's trying to do anyway. But if we're alive and we're going out and spreading the message of the gospel, yes, of course, that's going to mean that Satan's going to fight against us. But if we're alive enough to get out and be missionaries for Jesus Christ, and that means we're alive enough to fight against the influence of evil. William Carey was a cobbler in England. You've probably heard his name if you've done any kind of reading uh, in, in Christian biography. But in his little workshop, he had all the tools of the trade. He was a cobbler. He was a shoe, you know, shoe repair guy. He had a book or two. He had a Bible. He had a Dutch grammar. He had a copy of Cook's Voyages. Um, but... The thing that captivated his attention the most was a little homemade map that was made out of leather and paper that hung up on his wall, and it was of the West Indies. And God had laid a burden on his heart to reach those people in the darkest areas where they had no gospel influence at all to go out and to reach those people. And so on May 31st, 1792, William Carey preached his famous sermon in Nottingham, England, and from Isaiah 54, he preached about the idea of lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. And his message just deeply impressed those who were there at that meeting, the delegates of the Northamptonshire Baptist Association, and a mission society was formed. And as a result of that, they sent William Carey as the first missionary out of that missionary society, and really one of the first missionaries in America. I mean, this was 1792. America had only gain their independence in 1776, had only officially become a nation in 1789. So in 1792, George Washington was still in his first, you know, first term as president. Um, but he went, he went to India in a step of faith, and God opened doors for him there. And that's why I say, William Carey had to take that first step. He went to India, and this is back in the 1790s. This was not when you could... Google something real quick, find out everything you need to know about you know, the country of India, and then go over there and have people waiting for you when you got there and everything else. 
He took that step of faith, not knowing what was going to happen by the time he got there. But he went, and God opened doors once he got to India, and he started a factory. He learned a dozen languages. He, he, he wrote a, um, a, a beautiful translation of the Bible. He built the finest Bible college in the country, uh, produced tremendous uh, missionaries out of that Bible college, and they were able to reach many, many people in India with the gospel. Uh, because he was willing to step out in faith, and once he did that, then God opened those doors. He had been given a tremendous opportunity, and he took it, and then God opened tremendous doors. So this church at Philadelphia, they were a church with an opportunity, and they took it, and that's a tremendous uh, testimony of their trust and their faith in God. But the second thing is, they were a church with an ability. Look what it says in the second half of verse number eight. For thou hast, little, hast a little strength, and has kept my word, and has not denied my name. Now, the Lord saw their weakness, but he also saw their willingness. And perhaps we could call this a couched, gentle reproof. Uh, he said that uh, thou hast a little strength, but maybe not, though. The strength of this church was small, but it was strength of the right kind. And the strength of a church does not consist in worldly wealth. It doesn't consist of wisdom or power. The strength of a church consists in its faithfulness to the word of God and the profession of the name of Jesus Christ. That's where we gain our strength from. And I don't know, you know, this strength is termed little. I think maybe probably not with the intention to reprove this church for saying that you have small faith, but to show us what a little strength of that kind can do against the powers of Satan and against the powers of darkness and against the rulers of the darkness of this world and how greatly a little of that strength is, is prized by him that is holy and true. He says, you have a little strength, but it's the strength of the right kind, and all you need is a little strength. It's almost like saying if you just have the faith of the, the size of a grain of, of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And I think that's what he's getting across here. I don't think he's, I don't think he is criticizing them saying you got tiny faith, you know, or tiny strength. Um, and, but I think I'll use you anyway. I think what he's saying is you have a little strength and that little strength is all you need if you're doing it in my strength and not in your own. It may also be designed to teach us, I believe, that even that strength under those circumstances is small compared to the full power that we could really have in Jesus Christ and in God's strength. You know, I mean, it's like saying that, you know, again, I go back to that idea. If, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. I mean, that is so tiny. Has anybody ever seen a mustard seed? I, I went to a, an Amish market up in Harrisonburg, and I, and I got a bag of mustard seeds just because, you know, I mean, obviously I'm not going to plant them, but just so I could use it as an illustration, I should have brought it tonight. They're tiny, tiny. I mean, they, they would kind of remind you maybe of like a seed that you would see inside a strawberry. I mean, just really, really small. And he's saying, if you just had a little tiny bit of faith, you can move a mountain. I mean, that shows you then how small our faith really is, you know. Um, but, and, and I think that's what he's trying to get across here. You have that little strength. Because you have that little strength and it's the right kind, you'll be able to do some tremendous, tremendous things. They had an ability. But the little strength, I believe, suggests that the church had been subjected to some severe uh, heartaches, some severe struggles, some severe um, strain, but it hadn't lost its vitality. It had, it had been weakened, but it hadn't lost its hold. They said, you still got a little bit of that strength left. 
And I, I can use that. The difference between this church, this church and the other churches that we've looked at, I believe, lays in this. God saw other churches weakening and losing life. He saw this one keeping its life and then trying to get back up to a full strength. He says that. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. It's, it's precisely that little strength that Christ is looking for. And... It's the sign of ability. It's, it's, it's the basis of possibilities. It's the area that God can work in. Uh, this, it's a difficult age to be, a part of the, to, the, to be a part of the true church of God. And there's a lot of other people out there that claim to be Christians that are, that are no more Christian than, you know, than, than the next person who's you know, an atheist. But most people don't want it, and they don't feel that they need it. It's a very difficult time to be you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, these churches were growing like crazy because I believe we experienced maybe what you could call a mini revival in America, but there was still morality. There was still, uh, you know, that desire. And so these churches were growing. Sunday schools were growing. Bus ministries were growing. Christian schools were growing. All of those things were. And we got to a point now where none of those things are. In fact, they're going the opposite direction. It's a difficult age that we live in. I mean, you know how it is just with trying to get the people in that you invite to church. You know, they don't think they need it. They're busy. They got this going on and that going on. And all of these other things are more important. And church, you know, just church by itself is not, an, you know, it's not the end all be all. Just because somebody walks into church doesn't mean that they're saved and that they're a great Christian. But to be a good Christian, you need to go to church. You know, uh, it doesn't make you a great Christian because you go, but it's hard to be a good Christian unless you go. And all I'm saying is it's a very difficult time to be part of the true church of God. But churches don't need to fail. They're closing in record numbers. They say that there are 7,000 churches a year that are closing. And that's, that's all denominations. It's not just Baptist, but, but there's a high number of Baptist churches that are closing too. 7,000 a year and only 4,000 opening. And that, that includes everything, non-denominational, you know, assembly of God, whatever else you want to call it. That's, that's just churches. 7,000 are closing and 4,000 opening. That's 3,000 churches a year that we're losing. Something like seven churches a day close their doors. That's a lot. It's a lot. It means that there was a revival at some point where there were a lot of churches that were being started. Uh, but those churches, you know, they fail and people quit going and, and all of that stuff. But even under the most extreme pressure, just like we see in the Church of Philadelphia, you can keep a little strength. And I believe that what God is saying here is if you're striving and God can still use you. May not be much left, but if you just have a little strength, God can use that. Story of, of Hugh Latimer's conversion, and, and that's another name that you might recognize. Um, I believe he's written about in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, by the way, and I don't want to get off on this, I'm not going to, but uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs was written about, you know, Stephen was the first one they wrote about, and Stephen's in the Bible. And then all the way through the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, you know, past the 1500s, 1600s, into the Reformation, and all the people that were put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what Fox's Book of Martyrs is about. There's another book that came out not that long ago called By Their Blood, and that is about all of these people who have been martyred and are continuing to be martyred in our modern age. Do you know that there are more Christians who are being martyred today than at ever in the history of the world? You don't hear about it that much, but there are more Christians being martyred around the world today than at ever 
in the, in, the, in the point of history. I mean, we hear about, oh, you think about the time of Nero when he was, you know, killing Christians and putting their heads on poles and using their heads to light his pathways and things like that. I mean, it's just twisted and demented. And, but these Christians suffered through that. And we think, oh, this, you know, all these horrible things that they suffered through. And they did suffer through some very horrible things. But there are more Christians being killed today for being Christians than at, at any point in human history. Um, and, and I say all that to say, you, you might have heard about Hugh Latimer. He was one of those that um, kind of gives an example of what happens when um, feebleness is wedded to faithfulness. You might be feeble, you might not have a whole lot, but you marry that to faithfulness, and God can do tremendous amounts with that. Let me tell you the story of Hugh Latimer. He was, he was an idol of the common people. He was his, his reputation was that he was known as the most honest man in England. How he got that reputation, I don't know. But he was, he was basically second to the king. He was a chaplain to the king in England. And uh, he was a bishop of the high church. Uh, he ended up being burned at the stake in Oxford for refusing to bow to the whims of the court. And you'll understand why in just a minute. He was burned along with Bishop Ridley, who was another one of these Christians who had come out of the Catholic Church. And while they were lighting the sticks under Hugh Latimer's feet as he was getting ready to be burned at the stake, he turned to uh, Bishop Ridley and said, We shall this day, my Lord, light such a candle in England as shall never be extinguished. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, The gospel spread, the word of God spread, and many, many people got saved. But Hugh Latimer was led to Christ by what many would consider a nobody. Nobody even really knows what his name was, but he was known as Little Bilney, B-I-L-N-E-Y. That's the only thing that anybody knows about this guy's name. He was a nobody by all accounts. But he found Christ through the writings of Erasmus. Erasmus was was an ancient scholar, a Christian, and he read what Erasmus wrote, and he ended up accepting Jesus Christ as his Savior. And right at that time, Uh, Hugh Latimer was preaching as a bishop in the Catholic Church, Um, and obviously, you know, they're they're not preaching the truth. Uh, They're preaching a works salvation rather than a faith-based salvation, and Hugh Latimer was was the most well-known person in England at that time. Bilney went to hear him. He was captivated by what he heard Hugh Latimer say, and so he began to pray that the Lord would give him the privilege of leading Father Latimer, as he was known then, to, to Christ. And so, uh, I mean, in those days, uh, Hugh Latimer was, was what, what could be considered the champion of Rome. I mean, he was basically their top bishop, their number one. He wasn't the pope, but he was, he was more popular than the pope. And little Bilney got a desire and a burden to see him get saved. And he, he, he thought to himself, if Father Latimer could get saved, could you imagine the impact that he would be able to have on so many people that he has an influence over. And so he started to pray for this man. And little Bilney was, was not only feeble, and, and obviously he was nobody, but he was faithful. And he faithfully prayed for, for, for Hugh Latimer. And he went to the church where Latimer was preaching, and he waited until this popular priest walked down the aisle of the church. I mean, and this, this takes a lot of boldness, too. But he waited till he walked down the aisle of the church, and then he grabbed onto his robes, and he said, I have a confession that I need to make. And of course, you know, the church still does it today, but the Catholic church, they, they do their confessions to a priest. And so 
they went back to the confessional, and Father Latimer heard little Bilney pour out his soul and talk about all the things that he had suffered through, uh, the anguish that was going on in his own soul, until he read what Erasmus wrote, and that turned him to the Bible. And in the Bible, he realized that he needed to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. No sacrament, no ritual, no resolve was able to heal the way that Jesus Christ was able to do that. And so he told of, of the book that he read from Erasmus, and he said, I went to the priest, and they pointed me to broken cisterns that couldn't hold any water. He said, but I found Jesus Christ, and in him I have been made completely whole. He saved me, and now I have peace with God. Well, Father Latimer was, was just assaulted on all fronts because he knew that exactly what little Bilney was talking about was the same thing that was going on in his own heart and his own mind. Which, by the way, there's a lot of people who we feel are untouchable. And by that I mean, you know, this guy is this person. He would never get saved. He would never be able, we could never reach him with the gospel because he is this important person, you know. Whoever it is. It could be the President of the United States. Uh, it could be anybody, you know. Well, we can't. I mean, he'll, he'll never get saved. I mean, how would he ever get saved? He is so-and-so. But you know what? Those people are going through the same things in their mind that everybody else in the world that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior is going through. Because at the end of the day, no matter how important they are, they're human, and they have a soul, and they have a creator who is trying to draw them back to himself. And just because to us that person looks untouchable because of who they are, God might be working on that person's heart in a way that you have no idea how God is working. And that's why, you know, we're on our prayer list, we're praying for, for Tommy Brannon, the, the supervisor. We're praying for the police chief. We're praying for Mike Carroll and some of these guys who just look untouchable to us because of who they are. God wants to save them just as bad as he wants to save the person right up the street. Who doesn't, know, you know, who doesn't know anybody and who is, by you know, our standards, a nobody. God wants to save them, and those people, if they don't know Christ, are going through the same thing in their mind and in their soul that every other person that doesn't know Jesus Christ is going through. They're not untouchable by the gospel. The gospel can touch their hearts, and that's exactly what happened to Hugh Latimer. The most honest man in England had been confronted by the most faithful man in England, and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He walked around that confession booth and went to where little Billney was sitting, and he kneeled down at that man's feet, and he said, I need to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And right there, Hugh Latimer, the most famous man, the most honest man in England, the most well-known priest in all of England, accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And feebleness wedded to faithfulness gives us a great opportunity and a great ability in the eyes of God. What a tremendous characterization of a church. Look what he says in verse number 8 has kept my word, you've not denied my name. That's faithfulness. Boy, if those, if those words could be said of us by the Lord himself when the biography of this church is written, and that's exactly what we have there in verse 7 through 13. That is the biography that the Lord wrote on the church at Philadelphia. Could you imagine if that's what God said about us? You're faithful. You haven't denied my name. You stayed faithful. You had a little strength, and you used every bit of that little strength to, to worship me and to, and to pass on my name. So they were a church with an opportunity. They were a church with an ability, but also they were a church with a security. Look what it says in verse number 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. 
Now, God always is to his people as they are to him. In other words, when we're faithful to God, God's going to be faithful to us. When, we're, when we honor God, God's going to honor us. He meets them. He responds to them. He's always as they are, but he's always better to them than they are to him. Now, for the sake of time, you don't have to turn over there, but Psalm 18 and verse 25, with the merciful, thou wilt show mercy. With an upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. Keep the faith. God will keep his promises. In other words, the keepers will be the kept ones. Those who keep God's promises, those who keep the faith will be the ones that God keeps in return. The fiery trial that's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 was about to spread over the entire world as it was known at that time, the, you know, Europe and, and, and that, air, that Roman Empire, and God promised that they would be kept in that hour of trial and temptation. But I think it's bigger than that. I think it's much bigger than that. I think this is referring to the Great Tribulation. And by the way, we're not going to get off on a rabbit trail with this either, um, but there are, sadly, even Christians who, who are split on this issue. You have pre-tribulational rapture, you have mid-tribulational rapture, and you have post-tribulational rapture. And that by that I mean this. We believe that the rapture is going to happen. One day, God, Jesus Christ, is going to come back and he's going to call us home. We're not going to see death. Many people will die. There's many people that have died. But one day, the trumpet's going to sound, and in the blink of an eye, God, Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to rapture those who are saved out of this world. Pre-tribulational rapture says, now the great tribulation is coming. There's going to be seven years of tribulation. We see that in Revelation. Seven years of horrible, horrible tribulation that, that is just going to be some tremendous heartache and bloodshed and, and all of these things. That's what the great tribulation is. You can read about it in Revelation. Those who believe in pre-tribulational rapture means that the rapture is going to happen and then those seven years of tribulation are going to start. That's what we believe. That's what I believe, and I, I, I hope that that's what you believe too. There's people who believe in mid-tribulational rapture. In other words, we're going to go through three and a half years of the great tribulation, and then Jesus Christ is going to come back and take us out. Then there are those who believe in post-tribulational rapture, means we're going to go through all seven years of that tribulation, the great tribulation, and then God's going to come back and take us. Two things about that. Number one, the Bible says the day and the hour that Jesus Christ is going to come back knoweth no man. If we can say the great tribulation started on that day, we can put a countdown clock and Jesus Christ is going to come back in three and a half years. That means we would know the day and the hour that he's going to come. That's one thing. But number two, the Bible says that God will never allow those who are his to go through the great wrath of God. And so there's nothing left to say than the fact that God is going to rapture us out before that great tribulation starts. And that's proof. One of those is proof right here. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, the language of these verses, I believe, indicates a universal trial, not just something that was specific to that local church. Now, they were getting ready to go through great temptation. They were getting ready to go through great trials, and there was going to be a lot of persecution and everything else. But to try the entire world, I believe that's talking about the great tribulation. It's an assurance to the church that we will be kept from that hour by the Lord's coming in the sky. What an example of the fact that everything is under the Lord's control. Everything is under his control. Nowhere in the Bible are we given a worse situation 
than what's going to happen on earth during the Great Tribulation. And boy, I'm telling you, if you read through some of the things in Revelation about that Great Tribulation, the Bible says that the blood, the blood will be flowing as high as the horse's bridle. Could you imagine that amount of bloodshed? Uh, and just some horrible, horrible things that are going to go on through that Great Tribulation. But the greatest part is that God guarantees that His church will not see that trial. Now, verse number 9, wicked men may come to power. They may try to defy God's throne, but he has control over that. And it says that in verse number nine, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. See, he has control over all those people who claim to be Christians or who don't even claim to be Christians, but who are fighting against the name of Jesus Christ. But his greatest desire is to find the faithful ones, weak though they may be, and unveil the secrets of his heart to them. Tells them what moves to make. He wants them to win. We see that in verse number 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man can take thy crown. Now, somebody suggested this, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is, it's, it's just a suggestion. Um, there's nothing else that we're given in, in the Bible that would confirm this, but there are five crowns that we can win. We can earn a crown of faithfulness. We can earn a crown of righteousness. We can earn five different crowns. And he says there in verse number 11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. One commentator that I was reading suggested the fact that there's a limited number of crowns in heaven. And not just everybody who happens to be faithful is going to get one, but those who are the most faithful are going to get the limited number of crowns that are there. How, how else would somebody take your crown away from you? You know, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it, it's, it's worth thinking about. It's worth thinking about anyway. So they were a church with an opportunity. They were a church with an ability. They were a church with security. And lastly, and quickly, they were a church with permanence. Now look what it says in verse number 12 of Revelation chapter 3. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Now there's some really interesting things in this verse. The main idea, to, to just to kind of give you a little bit of a background to this, of a pillar is something that is put to a very important task, and permanently, right? If you put a pillar on a building, it's not something that you're just going to, you know, move as you, as you see fit. A pillar of a building is, is what holds the building up, right? And what he's saying to this church is the Philadelphia believers only had a little strength, but that's all God needs. The Lord promises to make them temple pillars, which is the very symbol of, of solidarity and stability and strength. And he promises to, to make them pillars in the temple of his God. God will use those feeble ones, those who have a little strength and an aspect of his eternal purposes, and he's going to undergird them. Added to that, I think what we see in verse number 12, and I think this is very interesting, is that God is going to take the overcomers and mark them. Now look how he says he's going to mark them. The overcomers are going to be forever marked. What is the mark? First thing is that he's going to be identified with the Lord's infinite greatness. Look what he says there. He says, I will write upon him the name of my God. What could be greater than that? Now, Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God. Yet he says, I will write upon him the name of my God. 
In other words, the name of his own Father in heaven. What a distinguishing mark to wear for all of eternity, right? That's who we're talking about, those who overcome, right? Now look at the second thing. We're going to be identified with the Lord's infinite greatness, but also will be identified by the Lord's invincible government. He says, I will write upon him the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. So the overcomer is going to be eternally identified with the new Jerusalem. No matter where we go, and I don't know what heaven is going to be like, how vast it is. I mean, we know heaven is just tremendously large. But no matter where we go in God's vast space, we're going to be recognized as citizens of the new Jerusalem. And we're going to have that mark, the mark of the overcomer, written with the name of the new Jerusalem. And, and basically marked that we are members of heaven. Now, those are interesting. But I think this one, we're going to be identified with the Lord's inherent glory. He says this, and I will write upon him my new name. Now, there are mysteries that we don't know anything about. Eternity is one of those things. It doesn't make sense to us. How can you understand eternity? It's a mystery, right? How can time never stop? There has to be an end somewhere, but not with eternity. Uh, same thing with the Trinity. How can three be one? We can try to explain it with, you know, an egg. There's a shell and the... Uh, the inner layer, you know, the white and the yolk. And all three of those things make up one thing. But those, there's still three distinct things. It, we can't understand, you know, the Trinity because it's, it's something that Jesus Christ has not yet revealed to us in this universe. But something of that unknown glory will be written into the countenance of the overcomers. What is the name for... Jesus in the Old Testament. Do you know? What is it? It is. What, what is, what is the, the, uh, the common name that we see in the Bible? You're, you're on the right track. It's, that's what he's going to be called in the New Testament, Jehovah, right? Jesus in the Old Testament is Jehovah. Who is Jesus in the New Testament? He's mentioned it. Emmanuel, God with us and all this stuff. But Jesus, right? That's what we call him in the New Testament. But look what it says there. It says at the end of that verse, and I will write upon him my new name. Boy, if you talk about Jehovah, there's so much that that name unfolds. And then you talk about Jesus. That's his present name. What a, what a volume of revelation there is in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. But it says he will have a new name. It's not given to us what that new name is going to be. But I, you can only imagine, and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, I have not seen, nor hath ear heard, uh, neither have entered into heart, the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And I just, he's going to write that name, his new name, as a mark upon those who are overcomers. What a wonderful thing that that's going to be. Now let me bring, let me close by bringing your attention to this phrase in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. It says this, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now, that's not, you know, paying religious, you know, devotion to them. It's not somebody coming and bowing down at the feet of the Pope and kissing his feet and all those kind of things. It's not, it's not any of those things. It's not, uh, um, it's not any kind of religious devotion to this church. But these, it, the Bible says there that they're going to come and bow and worship before their feet. I think what that means is this. 
the enemies of God were, are going to be convinced that they have been in the wrong and that this church, God's true church, is in the right and that it's beloved of Jesus Christ. And they're going to have a desire to worship with that church so much so that they will bow before so that they can worship the same God in the same way. The Bible says very clearly in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee is going to bow. Whether they want to or not, they're going to be forced to bow, and they're going to be forced to accept the fact that they were wrong and that God and his true church was right. But how will those things be brought about? Of course, by the power of God upon the hearts of the enemies and by showing his favor to the church. It says, they shall know that I love thee. The greatest honor, the greatest happiness that any church can, can have bestowed on them is to have this peculiar love and favor of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine having God say that about our church? Christ can show his favor to his people in such a way that the enemies of God see it and want what that church has. And they'll bow at their feet. And this, th that will, by the grace of Christ, soften the hearts of the enemies uh, and make them desire to have what the redeemed have. Our job, our job is to live as faithful Christians of Jesus Christ, faithful servants of Jesus Christ, little strength though we may have, and as a church that wins the favor of Jesus Christ so that we might win a lost world to him. Boy, what a testimony this church of Philadelphia was. Nothing is mentioned of the weaknesses of this church because it was a strong church. But the thing about this church that, that characterized it is that it was just faithful. If we could take one word about this church, it was a faithful church. It says, you've not denied my name. You've kept my word. You only had a little bit of strength, but you went through those doors that I just slightly opened. You took that step of faith. You were faithful to follow my word. And now I'm going to honor you because of it. You're overcomers. You're going to be marked for all of eternity as an overcomer. And the enemies of the Lord are going to have to bow down at your feet, not to worship you, but to recognize that you were right all along. And that what you did as a church was the way that it should have been and the things that you should have done all along. Boy, what a tremendous, tremendous testimony this is to the church of Philadelphia. And if we could emulate that in this church, we're going to be ones that God's going to bless and honor because of that. Let's be church, a church that is true to the word of God. Let's be a church that is faithful to the word of God. Let's be a church that is willing to step out in faith so that God can open more doors of opportunity to us so that we can win more people to Jesus Christ and so that we can, as a church, have the favor of Christ that will make others want to bow down and say, they did it right. They did it right, and now God is honoring them. You know, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. The, the tremendous temptation, and, and many churches are falling to this temptation, but the tremendous temptation is to just let things go because, well, this is just the way that it is now. This is the way that everybody's doing it. But we stay faithful to God and stay faithful to the word of God. Blessings may not come in this life. We're not going to be lifted up as some great, wonderful church, maybe. But I don't need to be lifted up by the world. I need to be lifted up by Jesus Christ. And his opinion is the only one that matters. And I want him to stand, uh, I want us to stand before him someday and say, Church, you are faithful. Church, I'm going to let the world know that I've loved you and that you did it the right way because you followed my plan. That's all we can, that's all we can want. 
That's all we can need. And if we have that, then we've done it right. Church at Philadelphia did. Let's make sure we follow that church. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the time that we can spend together. God, I do pray that you'd help us as a church to be faithful to you, faithfully follow you so that you can bless us. Not so we can say, ah, see, I told you so, but so that we can stand before you someday and hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful church. You did what I asked you to do. And if that means that we have just a handful of people who stay faithful and and win souls for you, so be it. If that means that you grow this church to be large, then so be it. But We want to do exactly what you want us to do. We want to take the opportunities that you give us. We want to take the uh, open doors that you give us, and we want to step out in faith so that you can open more. Pray that you help us all to do that. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.